I'd like us uh, to look at uh, these verses, uh, verses 16 to 21. The reason why I've taken um, uh, these verses is uh, to remember the coming of the Lord, but uh, you know, that when you read uh, in verse 16, isn't it, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. It's very often a verse that relates more to Easter than it actually does to Christmas. But nevertheless, uh, as you think about uh, what is stated here concerning uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, it does remind us, doesn't it, that uh, God has given us such a wonderful gift in the giving of His Son. When we read about these things, you know, with the connection between Calvary and what we celebrate today is the fact that without the celebration, actually tomorrow, we could not celebrate Easter because Jesus had to come into this world. He had to experience death and death there at Calvary. And so it is a reflection, isn't it, that as we dwell upon this period of time and this time of the year, that it is to reflect upon the Lord Jesus Christ because the association, of course, with um, the Lord Jesus Christ is that he is defined here as being a gift from God. And it is a time, isn't it, when, you know, families and people, you know, give out gifts at this time. And it is really, in all the gifts that people give, is a reflection of love and concern that people have towards the person to whom they give it. And in many ways, when we look at this verse, isn't it, it does remind us, isn't it, of the extent of God's love in the way in which he gave. And, you know, Paul, when he's writing to the church in Rome, he says that God did not spare his only son. God did not spare him. But God sent him into the world. You know, what a wonderful thing it is that God could express his divine love toward us in the fact that he gave to us this glorious gift of his son. You know, when we think about him, isn't it, we think about the wonderful things that have happened in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, you know. And when we read about him here, that God sent his Son into the world, we read there in verse 18, isn't it? Or verse 17, rather. For God sent his Son into the world, but that the world of him might be saved. But God did send his Son into the world. And it is a revelation to us, isn't it? that here was the son that was sent into the world. And you could think for a moment, isn't it, you know, sometimes you know, if you look in uh, fairy stories and, uh, you know, children love fairy stories and they tell me that all people love fairy stories. But when you think about it, isn't it, very often you get the picture, don't you, of the king, and the king seated there and he's got a, a wonderful prince. And, you know, if he wants to do anything that is extravagant, he sends his prince to do it. And uh, the prince, you know, is the beloved of the king. And in many ways, here is the picture here, isn't it? You know, the king sending his son. And when you think about it for a moment, you know, the fact of him sending his son, the fact that he pre-existed before he ever came into the world, it's like the king sitting there upon his throne and there in his castle or, you know, in his palace, and then sending his son and giving his son a mission to perform and setting his son aside to do this mission. 
And this mission wasn't a secret mission. It wasn't something that was going to be concealed, but it was something that was going to be expressed in such a way that all the world was going to know about what God has done. Because what has God done? God has sent His Son into the world. And this Son is a demonstration to us of God's love and God's interest in a fallen world. And so you see it here. Reveal something of who God is. He's come to fulfill this mission. And we know that the mission was fulfilled at Calvary. We know that the mission was fulfilled at Easter when we remember it. You know, because Jesus says that it is finished. The work for which he had come had come to an end. This is the thing about Jesus, isn't it? When you look here, that the Jews themselves, you know, the mentality that they had, you know, that this Jesus they had awaited for such a long period of time, and yet for all of that, even when Jesus comes, he is rejected by these people. You know, the world, when you think about it for a moment, isn't it, the world into which Jesus came was a, a world that was dominated by sin and wickedness, and yet for all of that, God, in his infinite mercy and love, sends his son into the world, into this awful state and condition. And when he comes into this world, of course, he's coming into the world to reveal something of God. And you know, ever since the fall, when man was in the Garden of Eden and man committed sin, as we know, you know, there was a perfect environment, a perfect situation in which man found himself. And yet, in that perfect situation... There was an open rebellion against God. And what happened was that when man sinned, of course, judgment came upon man. Sin entered into the world and death death passed upon all men because all men sinned. Because in that act of Adam committing sin in the Garden of Eden, there was a judgment not only passed upon Adam, but it passed upon all of mankind. In that instant, death came. Death, something that was alien to the world, came into this world. And yet, in all of this darkness and in all of this gloom, God sent a message, and that message was a message of light and hope. If you could imagine a situation where God said, well, the penalty for your sin is death, but outside of that you've got absolutely no hope whatsoever, what a grim situation the world would have been in. But what God does is, The seed of the woman is going to bruise the serpent's head. Here is the message, here is a message, the first message of salvation and redemption, that here was a a seed that was going to come into the world, here was a man that was going to be born, that was going to crush the powers of hell, here was this man. And so you find with the Jews themselves, you know, when the Jews are looking at Jesus, they sent people to ask, who are you? First of all, of course, they thought that uh, John the Baptist was somebody special, didn't they? In chapter 1, you read that uh, concerning John, isn't it? And it says like this in verse 19. Now, this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? Why were they, why were they sending this? They, 
They wanted to know. You see, they, were, they had this glorious hope and prospect. They were waiting for a Messiah to come. So they, they saw this man who was doing these wonderful things out there in the, in the wilderness. All the people were gathering to him. And so they sent people, the religious leaders, who are you? And he confessed. Did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. Why? Well, that's who they were looking for. They were looking for the Messiah. They were looking for the Christ to come. They were looking, is this man the Christ? And he said, I'm not the Christ. And they asked him, well, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. Then they said to him, who are you? That he may give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. And then we get this, as the prophet Isaiah said. Yeah, it was a prophecy, you see. Coming out of the Old Testament, from the prophet Isaiah, 700 years before Christ. Here is this prophet. Here was the one who was to be the forerunner of Jesus. And here he is confessing and acknowledging, you know, I've come here, he says, as a voice to tell you, get prepared. He is coming. I'm not him, but he is coming. And they were to prepare themselves for this. They were to look in anticipation to somebody who was going to come after John. And so you find that here's the situation that they had these prophecies and these prophecies all down through the ages. And you could go through the Old Testament in actual fact, you know, and you can find prophecy upon prophecy concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, one of the very simple and basic ones, isn't it? When it talks about where Jesus was going to be born, that he was going to be born in Bethlehem, Ephrathah. And, uh, you know, this was the situation. There was the anticipation that somebody was going to be born in Bethlehem. This Messiah was going to be born there. He was going to be, who? The son of David, the son of Abraham. He was going to be this particular person. Here was the line of descent. Here was the place where he was going to be born. It's so absolutely specific that it was strange that they could not see who Jesus was. But you see, these people, isn't it, were living in dark. Do you remember this great prophecy from uh, Isaiah chapter 9? And it says, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. And then it goes on to say in verse 6, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Here is God's enthusiasm for the child that is born, the son that is given. Here was Christ, the baby. But here is Christ, isn't it? Giving light. Giving light and hope. All of these prophecies in the Old Testament were going to come to a culmination in Jesus. You remember how the writer of the Hebrews puts it, isn't it? You know, God went sundry times and in divers manners spoke in times past unto the fathers. 
as in these last days spoken unto us by his Son. What was happening? Down in the Old Testament, all through the Old Testament, you had these glimmers, these lights that were shining, prophecy upon prophecy upon prophecy, clearer and clearer light leading and being brought until it comes into fulfillment in the person of Jesus coming. That promise that God had made in the Old Testament became a person in the New Testament and the fulfillment of all of those prophecies. Jesus came. Jesus was that Messiah. You see, what we find is that God had a plan and God had a purpose for this. And you know, if we were to look at the purpose of God, and we were looking at these verses and to ask the question, well, what was the purpose of God in sending His Son? Well, we, we know that uh, Calvary was the culmination in it. But it also says in verse 17, isn't it, for God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. Here was the plan and purpose of God. Not that the Son was coming to condemn the world. Oh, there is going to be a condemnation upon the world, isn't there? We know that God has entrusted the judgment of the world to this man, to Jesus. When he comes a second time, judgment is coming with him. But the original plan and purpose of God in the coming, or the first coming, shall we say, of Jesus, was not to bring about this condemnation upon the world where there would be this total destruction of the world, but the judgment that was coming is coming later. But here, the plan and purpose of God was that the world through him might be saved. That he was going to become the savior of the world. How often do we come across these expressions about Jesus as being the savior, isn't it? You know, when you think about Joseph for a moment, when he was wondering about what he was going to do because he found out that Mary was with child. He thought of infidelity. He thought, what could he do? Tells us he was a just man, and then he has a dream. And the, dream, the angel appears in this dream and tells him to take Mary unto himself, for that which is conceived of her is born or conceived of the Holy Spirit. And what were they supposed to do? They were going to call his name Jesus. Why were they going to call his name Jesus? For he shall save his people from their sin. That's why. Shepherds, isn't it, as they were watching over their flocks by night as we sing? What happened to them? The angels of the Lord appeared, and the glory of the Lord shone round and about them. Taken up suddenly with a sense of the glory of God, heaven as it were, the doors of heaven itself were opened. What was the message? For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This was the message. This was the message. The Savior had come. God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. One of the problems the Jews had with Jesus, of course, is they couldn't uh, accept him for who he was. They couldn't basically recognize Jesus as being the Messiah that they thought was to come out of the Old Testament. 
They thought they were going to have this glorious king that was going to come, who was going to trample, as it were, and afoot all the nations of the world, and they would be supreme. But then you have Jesus coming and riding upon a donkey, entering into Jerusalem. Didn't they see the prophecy being fulfilled in the Old Testament? Didn't they see that when they looked at Jesus? See, the Messiah's purpose and plan was to save the world. world can be translated in lots of different ways, right? In the Scriptures. Too many to number at this point in time, but just to mention the fact that uh, it could be the cosmic idea, the universe, the world at large. But here, how we see it is Jesus, when he was speaking to this man Nicodemus and talking with him, you know, the world at large, what is it? You know, redemption and salvation was not going to be confined or restricted to one particular nation, even though they were God's ancient people. God had entered into a covenant with Abraham, entered into the covenant, obviously, with his successors after that, and eventually the nation. But having said that, Salvation was not going to be confined or restricted to one particular nation, but it was going to be expansive in that it was going to extend to all the world. And the opportunity for all the world to respond to this message that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that what? That whosoever believes in him should have everlasting life. Here was the expansion of this idea of salvation. The expansion was to all the world, that the offer of salvation should be made to all nations, all peoples. The wonderful thing about the picture that you get in heaven, isn't it? In Revelation chapter 7, when you get this glorious picture, great multitude of people gathered around the throne of God. They were of all nations, kingdoms, and peoples. All nationalities were there. None exempt. No restriction. But God's church and God's kingdom and God's people are gathered from all the world. And that's what Jesus was conveying. And he came into the world to be the saviour of the world. And this is why you get this picture of Jesus here, isn't it? He is the one who has come in this particular way. And he is the one who is performing this particular work. He has come as a saviour. Not as a judge, not to judge the world, but as a saviour to save the world. And how are people going to be saved? Well, it's quite clear, you see, that the world at large is under the condemnation of God. didn't come to condemn the world, but to save the world. I mean, this world in which we live at this moment of time, isn't it? You know, if you look at the end of this chapter, it says... He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides in him. What a fearful thing that is, to have the wrath of God abiding on you. Or in verse 16, isn't it? Even in the expression and the demonstration of the love of God, where God says that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. But it should not perish what a threat that is offered to those who don't believe. You see, God lays down terms, as it were, for salvation for people, and the terms basically are, are very simple. 
believe and be saved. It's as simple as that. Believe and be saved. You know, there couldn't be anything that sounds so simple in that particular way. How often do you get it here, isn't it? That whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. You know, these particular people, these are supposed to believe in him. He who believes in him is not condemned in verse 18. But he who does not believe is because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So you can see, can you, you know, that life and death really is balancing, as it were, upon this fact of believing. This act of responding to this message of salvation, this believing in Jesus, the one who has been sent into the world by God, it's this that is the opportunity that is given to individuals, isn't it, to believe on Jesus in order to be saved. Life and death are presented here, and it's all, as it were, in the balance, isn't it? By whosoever believes. Believing brings life and immortality. It gives us that expression of God's life in our souls. Life upon believing. And you see, the way in which God works his purpose out and his plan out, of course, is by sending Jesus into the world. But how has Jesus come? Well, God's divine light is Jesus, isn't it? We can say like this, there were glimmers in the Old Testament, the prophecies that were given concerning the coming of Jesus. You know, all the messianic promises in the Old Testament were glimmers of light. It's almost as if, you know, the curtains are pulled back periodically so that light shines out of that room that is full of light, but out there is all the darkness. But Jesus has come, isn't he? And how does he speak of himself, his own self-expression? I am the light of this world. Whosoever follows me shall not walk in darkness, but I shall have the light of life. He said, I've come, he says. I am the light. Here I am. Think of John the Baptist for a moment, you know, in chapter, chapter uh, 1 again, going back to that for a moment, isn't it? In verse 6 it says, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. The man came for a witness, to bear witness of the light, that all through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which gives light to every man coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world did not know him. Came unto his own, and what happened? His own didn't receive him. Why didn't they receive him? Because they weren't born of the Spirit of God. But those who received him, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Something miraculous, something wonderful has taken place in the life and soul of these individuals, whereby they pass from darkness into the light, they pass from death to life, they pass from a place of condemnation acceptability and justification with God. They come to that state and in that condition, the true light was shining. And Jesus has said, doesn't he, that whosoever follows me shall walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. 
So those who believe and those who start to follow Jesus, who become true devotional people to Jesus, have this light of life. They have illumination, they have understanding, they have a grasp of who God is. They see and they perceive something in Jesus that is in no other person. God is reflected in him. I am the light. When Jesus was in this world, he was the light. It's only those who look at the light because why? Well, the world is in darkness. This is what these verses are all about, isn't it? And this is the condemnation, what? That the light has come into the world. But men love darkness rather than light. Why? Because their deeds were evil. Because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. This is the state and this is the condition of the world and this is the state and the condition of individuals. What is it? They love darkness with a passion. They love darkness. And if they love darkness, what happens is they hate the light. Why? Because the light exposes their sin and their ignorance of God and their condition before. And they don't want to be exposed. How many people feel threatened if they've done something wrong and somebody's going to expose them? Uh, what do they call it in te- on television? Are you trying to blackmail me? By saying something about me that is true, and they know something about you. They don't want it to be exposed. This is the threat of all blackmail, isn't it? But here is the state and the condition of men, you see, and women, that they find themselves in that state and in that condition. They don't want to look at the light. They don't want to consider. They don't want to consider who Jesus is or who God is. They don't want to be exposed to that because why? They see the darkness that's within. The sin, the evil that possesses men. Their state and this condition. They have an inbuilt opposition to the light. They have an inbuilt hate of that light. They don't want Jesus and they don't want God. That is their state and that is their condition. Well, what can be done for that then? You know, when people do all kinds of things, isn't it? Where people are emotionally and psychologically hooked on certain things. Alcohol, drugs. It doesn't have to be those things that we are so familiar with. It can be greed, can't it? You think of the rich young ruler for a moment, isn't it? You know, he comes to Jesus, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Oh, Jesus says, keep the laws. And he goes through a category and he says, oh, I've done all of those. Ah, he says... Now let's expose, shine light upon the hidden, upon the concealed. Sell all that you have. Give it to the poor. There wasn't any opposition to people possessing wealth and money. It wasn't that. But what Jesus was doing, you see, was he was opening up 
the heart of this individual. He was dealing with this person at a deeper level. And he was looking into the heart of the individual. He could see the covetousness in the heart because materialism can have such a grip on people. That suddenly his heart was being exposed. Here is the real trial. He wasn't tempted with adultery and with thievery or anything like that. He wasn't going to kill anybody or anything like that. But oh, deep within his heart, he was hooked upon materialistic things. And when Jesus exposed it to him, he couldn't do it. Have you ever heard of that expression, the expulsive power of a new desire? You know, people say it like this, if you, you know, if you're dumped by somebody, well, what do you do? If a woman dumps you, or a girl dumps you, or a man dumps a girl, or a man dumps a woman, what's the, the remedy? What's the solution? Or oh, go and find somebody else quickly. That's the solution. Yeah, a new desire. But you know, the expulsive power of a new desire is this, that the only thing that can extricate man from the power of sin is the love of God. Deep in the hearts and souls of the individuals. Suddenly that person, being born again of the Spirit of God, as we see earlier on in this chapter, but that, what happens? That deep in the heart and the soul of that individual, instead of hating the light, and not wanting to come to the light. He loves the light. And there is something that happens deep in the soul. Where there is this inner transformation, this inner change, whereby this particular person is suddenly revolutionized. And the expulsive power is this love for God and for Christ. And having loved Him, they're able to give up the sin that so dominated and controlled their life. Took control of them wouldn't liberate or free them, nothing could do it, except this new desire, the fact that you want to love Christ and to serve Christ, and to love God and to serve God. Then what do we do? We set these things apart and set them to one side. And we are liberated and free to serve God and to live in such a way that God will be glorified. Doesn't this what he says in verse 21? For he who does the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be clearly seen, that they have been done in God. Something has happened to that individual. Changed, transformed. The light has shone. The glory of God has been revealed in Christ. This expulsive power, the realization of who Jesus is and what God has done, drives that person. Fills them with new ambitions, with new desires. The whole of God. Some of you have heard me mention about a guy called uh, uh, Will. Will, what is his name? Jones, that's it. I was thinking of Will Thomas, but it wasn't Will Thomas, it was Will Jones. And when he was converted, didn't know really much about the Bible and things. He went off to um, a brethren meeting. And as he was going in, he went in, he heard the message. When he was coming out, he was confronted by one of the men there. 
He says, have you been saved? He says, I don't know. He says, how can I know if I've been saved? He said, well, do you hate the things that you once loved? Love the things that you once hated? And he said, well, I used to love drink. He says, now I hate it. Then he came to realize that he had gone through this change, this transformation. His heart was changed. Yes, he could realize for the first time he understood what it was to be saved. To grasp and to understand he had come into the light and he had understood it. And this change and this transformation that he had come to love the Savior. He was often seen, and he often used to get upset about this, that uh, preachers never brought him to tears. Sermon always brought him to tears, you see. And he used to say, well, you know, the effect that he used to have upon him, you know. Whenever you would preach about the cross and you would preach about the love of God and the love of Christ, you'd find him there in his pocket. I can't wig off tissue or something. But he used to bring out his handkerchief. He said, my handkerchief was dry this morning if he hadn't, if he hadn't wept. But the whole point is this. That he loved the Lord. And when he heard about the gospel, when he heard about salvation and what Jesus done, and his favorite hymn was the deep, deep love of Jesus, vast and measured, boundless, free, rolling as a mighty ocean in its fullness over me. Underneath me, all around me, is the current of your love, leading onward, leading homeward to my glorious rest above. When he used to sing that, he'd be in floods of tears because he loved the Lord. And you was the expulsive power. You was the, the power that transforms and changes lives. The fact that Jesus came as his Savior. Well, let me come to a quick conclusion. The expression of God's love, isn't it? God so loved the world. The word is actually to demonstrate the power and the influence of that word. Loved. You know, some people will talk about the quantity of love, isn't it? You think, oh, the world, the vastness, the greatness, isn't it? But reading in a commentary uh, recently, it was Carson's commentary, and uh, he's not the only one who has said this, but it's not the quantity of God's love, but the quality of God's love that should so impress us here. Because when you think about it, isn't it God so loving the world? What kind of world was it? It was a world in darkness. Men love darkness rather than the light. They hate the light. But for God to extend his love into a state and into a condition like that where men are in open rebellion against him, where men are opposed to him, is the demonstration of a holy God's love for a sinful world. It's the quality of that love that God could love a word like this and people like this who are in opposition against him. But for all of that, what has God done? He's given us such a glorious hope at Christmas, isn't he? Christ came into the world to save sinners. You a sinner? We're all sinners. But the wonderful truth is that God sent his son to the world to save people like you and me, isn't it? Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And Paul says, he goes on to say, isn't he, of whom I am chief. Uh, you've probably heard people say this before, but there's going to be multiple arguments in heaven, in glory, about who was the chief of sinners. Okay? 
Will Jones would have said, I am the chief of sinners. Okay? Do we feel like that at times, you know? I am the chief of sinners. But oh, what a God. That God so loved the world. Didn't leave us in that state of darkness. Didn't leave us in that state of condemnation and of judgment. But God so loved the world that he gave his son. Unsparing of the gift that he gave us. Demonstrated that love. Sending his son into the world. Not to condemn. But that the world through him might be saved. 